This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It's a day of announcements and information. It's easy to tell that today is not Sunday. There is a lot going on, and it began with a very big story in London. One of the biggest in a long time, and part of a conclusion, simply because there is still a lot more to come, and some of this will never go away. For anyone living on Woodman Avenue, life's different, and always will be. And for those who lost their home and lost the contents in that home, no, life's, life's not the same, and it won't be. For the firefighters involved, life is not the same, and it won't be. Today, sentencing came down for 24-year-old Daniela Lease of Kitchener. And following this story right from the beginning has been 980 CFPL reporter Andrew Graham. Andrew, thanks for taking some time for us. Thanks for having me, Mike. A virtual sentencing. This is one where if it hadn't been a pandemic, the courthouse was probably going to be packed. There would be a throng of reporters outside waiting for everybody to exit. In this case, what was the setup? Everybody at home gathered around a computer screen? Yeah, so for these virtual court hearings, for those who aren't familiar, basically it's a Zoom call with about 30 or so folks who are usually uh, various lawyers, law students, clerks, and what have you. Um, obviously, this was a busier sentencing uh, than usual, uh, but in this case, we had heard from Justice George Orsini, who uh, delivered the, the, the sentencing over the, uh, the virtual means this morning. Let's talk about what happened with this morning's proceedings. Tell us how this unfolded. Well, he started by giving a recap of the circumstances, and this is something obviously a lot of Londoners know about. But the the, the actual fact of the matter is that she had uh, driven one way uh, down a the wrong way down a one way street before crashing into a home on 450 Woodman Avenue. Of course, that crash had struck a gas line, sparked a massive explosion, which left three homes destroyed in the aftermath. Um, left four first responders um, in hospital some of them suffering life-altering injuries, and the financial impact was later revealed to be just shy of $15 million. Uh, We did hear some mitigating factors and some aggravating factors, uh, the mitigating factors being the guilty plea, uh, no prior criminal record, uh, so she's a youthful first offender. Uh, He also drew light on her uh, difficult upbringing. He mentioned that she was a victim of intergenerational trauma, this, of course, drawing on her indigenous background. She had great grandparents who were uh, survivors of the residential school system. And he also noted that she had taken active steps to address her alcoholism. Uh, There's also aggravating factors, of course, the bodily harm caused to multiple folks, uh, the blood alcohol level uh, that was uh, far above the legal limit, and as well, just the, the significant impact on victims it's had. As you mentioned, these are life-altering impacts. So as a result, she received a three-year prison sentence along with a three-year driving suspension. We're talking with Andrew Graham, 980 CFPL reporter, about that sentence right there. Three years in prison and three years following that of a driving suspension for 24-year-old Daniela Lees. When proceedings wrap up normally, there's emotion in the courtroom. There are all sorts of things in that way. Was... You know, was anyone available to speak to the media about this afterward, or do the proceedings kind of end and the Zoom meeting stops? Unfortunately, not, and and we'll have to wait and see 
if we hear from the victims, um, one of the issues at the moment is there is a lawsuit going on with a few of the homeowners um, who are infected, who are affected by this, and because of that ongoing lawsuit, um, we can't speak to them. They want to wait for the matter to be sorted out in court. Um, other homeowners and other victims have spoken about the reluctance to speak to media, saying how you know it is a it's a triggering thing every time they have to rebring up the this is a horrific night, and it really was a horrific night for that neighborhood. So we have yet to see, and as you mentioned, you know this is only the end of another chapter. There, there really is no closure in this scenario. And one thing we heard from the victim impact statements was that within Woodman Avenue, that community, there's almost a there's a diminished sense of security. Not not just in the fact that you have this you know massive opening of all this land that's kind of just an empty lot at this point but also the sense that you know the, there's now the idea that well what if this happens again and i can guarantee you most folks would have never expected something like this to happen in the first place yeah you think about that just the way that that street is set up where wrong way down a one-way street it can happen. It does happen. We see people go the wrong way on one-way streets all the time. And then to end the way that it does and have those houses right there, that's a great point. Andrew, thank you so much for your coverage of this. Thank you for having me, Mike. That's Andrew Graham, 980 CFPL reporter. It's, it's true. There is a spot in St. Thomas right near the hospital. And if you look at where it's positioned, there is a house, and that house has two great big rocks on the front lawn. And you think, that's, that's, no other house has these two great big rocks on the front lawn. Do the homeowners just like great big rocks? No, actually they're protecting themselves because if you look directly across the street, that's where one of the exits is for the parking lot. And who knows whether it's happened before. Obviously, something must have happened. But somebody hits the gas too hard coming out, misses the turn onto the street, and you're in that person's yard. So, yeah, that sense of security, you can't get that back. You can't get that back. There has been a lawsuit filed by five individuals affected. It is a lawsuit that is seeking a collective 25 million dollars but as andrew just told us the damage that has been done is far greater than that into the millions and this all goes back to august 14th 2019 and what ended up being a massive explosion we saw heroic efforts to get daniela lee's out of her vehicle this could have been even more tragic it is tragic it could have been even more tragic she could have lost her life. Other people could have lost their lives. Lives were changed. Injuries may never be completely overcome. But it could have been a lot worse. So three years. What do you think? Three years and then a three-year driving ban. Three-year driving ban. And remember, you don't expect someone to serve a full sentence. So three years becomes what? I don't know. Less than three years. How do you feel about that? We have been talking some golf on London Live this week. Mike Langley produced some interesting ideas, and we wanted to kind of 
touch on those in terms of how far apart tee times could be, how much money could that bring in for municipal courses. Yesterday, of course, a report came out, and we talked with Board 2 Councillor Sean Lewis about what that indicated in terms of losses that were experienced by the City of London. Joining us right now is Division Manager of Parks and Recreation for the City of London, John Paul McGonigal. John Paul, thanks so much for taking some time for us. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having us. Appreciate the opportunity, Mike. This has done just that. It's created this massive opportunity for conversation because I get feeling like different things become a real game of telephone these days where somebody hears something, says something, it may be mostly accurate, it may have some inaccuracies, and then that gets said to somebody, and that spreads, and away they go. And by the time you get to the end of a telephone line, you have a completely different story. So let's look at what we need to know from the city's perspective right now in 2021 about the city's owned golf courses. What do we need to know? Um, I think what what everybody needs to know, uh, and as stated in the report going forward to committee uh, next Tuesday, uh, is that the, the city of London's golf system is in some financial trouble. Uh, that isn't a new uh, conversation. Uh, and the other thing that's important to note uh, is that uh, the city of London's municipal golf system in its 100 years of operation has been a self-sustaining system. And so that self-sustaining system is, is having some struggles, and uh, we are recommending some, some adjustments and changes to the system uh, so that we can continue to have uh, one of the best golf systems in the country. Now, we heard yesterday from War II Councillor Sean Lewis that there's always been a fund that assists in any losses that may come forward, but he pointed to the fact that even that fund itself, that slush fund or however you want to term it, is dwindling, that it now has a little over 100000 left in it, and we have seen losses reported of over 100000 for you know for a little while now what does that mean yeah you know that that's uh that's that's correct um uh what it means is that uh there is uh, fewer and fewer finance uh, uh finances available uh, for the golf system to invest in itself uh, and that means uh, all the way from covering its own operating losses uh, to being able to reinvest itself uh, into systems that need to be replaced. And so when you have $158,000 in the bank, uh, when you're potentially looking at another year where losses may be present uh, and uh, where you have some capital needs that need to be addressed immediately, uh, it starts to become uh, rather concerning. And so uh, we feel it's appropriate at this time uh, to ensure the council knows uh, what the full picture is. And this is a process that started back in 2018. Uh, it is part of a larger corporate service review process. And, and uh, as everybody knows, we brought forward a report uh, in, in February of 2020. Uh, and we, are, we were directed to report back on River Road. And uh, this is that report back. John Paul McGonigal joining us, Division Manager of Parks and Recreation for the City of London. John Paul, one of those games of telephone that we talked about has a stream that eventually gets to somebody who stands up straight and says, they just want to get rid of River Road. When you hear that from the golf community, that no, this is just ultimately to reduce the number of courses or the number of holes that the city has municipally, how do you respond? Uh, you know, I, I think in all honesty, we can appreciate 
where everybody's coming from. Uh, this isn't uh, an easy conversation for the community. It's not an e- easy conversation for council. And it's not an easy topic for administration. But it is a necessary conversation. And, and so what I would say uh, is that we have a problem in the golf system. We need to figure out some financial ways to fix those problems. And we've put the recommendations forward with it. We think we'll do that. And so, you know, I, I don't want it to get lost that the ultimate objective and goals in this uh, is to make the system better than it currently exists today. And, uh, uh, you know, from a parks and recreation perspective, this isn't uncommon uh, when people have attachments to the assets and the services that we provide. Uh, and, and sometimes we have to look at difficult decisions in all areas, from arenas to aquatics and what's needing service and what's not and what's their operating model. And, and so, unfortunately, uh, golf is in a situation uh, where we need to look to make some adjustments uh, or come up with a financial solution uh, to the issues that we have currently. And uh, it is difficult for everybody, and we, we most certainly uh, can appreciate it. One of the ideas that we talked about with Councillor Lewis that had been brought up on Wednesday by Mike Langley was the idea that you could take the tee times, and obviously this is pandemic pending, but you can take those tee times and you, you could move them instead of being 12 minutes apart or 10 minutes apart. Mike said some courses even do eight minutes apart. Is there any brainstorming going on right now to say, okay, how do we make this better for golfers, more attractive for golfers, so that maybe they can get the tee times when they want them if you shove them together a little bit more? Yeah, but yeah, you know, I think it's important to recognize that Thames and Fanshawe uh, prior to 2020 uh, operated at eight-minute intervals and tee times. Uh, we started in 2020 when we opened in May uh, at 12-minute times. Uh, we were very happy uh, with that. Uh, that gave us an opportunity to see how the environment worked, noting that we were the first service under the pandemic to open from a, from a municipal perspective uh, to the public that way. And so, um, uh, you know, we went to 10-minute tee times uh, after four weeks of the season uh, once we felt as though staff were comfortable in serving uh, the golfers safely and once we felt as though uh, golfers uh, were comfortable with the protocols that were in place. And so we recognize the difference between 12 and 10 minutes is, is 16 golfers an hour. Uh, it does come with a cost, uh, but safety was our number one priority in 2020, and, and that will continue to be our focus moving forward. Sure. So the report that came out, that goes to council. How about the upcoming season? What do golfers need to know when the snow does clear and the club starts swinging? Hey, I, I, I think what, what everybody should know is we're excited. Uh, we're excited to get the golf season started. Last year we got started late, uh, and, I, and I think this year we, we have learned some things, and uh, so we'll be able to try some different things. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, we're looking forward to it. We're excited. Um, uh, both our staff are excited to come out and serve the public. It's been an incredibly difficult time for, for all members of both staff and the public on not being able to provide some services. And so we're excited, and, and uh, we hope that uh, come March 1st, uh, after this River Road uh, discussion takes place with Council, uh, that we'll be able to get up and start selling memberships, uh, no matter what the system looks like, and we'll be ready to serve golfers when, when it's time to go. Well, John Paul, we really appreciate the update from the city side of things, and we'll see how things do unfold. Is this year kind of a... Another test year, can we call it that, or are we not quite at that? You know, I, I don't want to sound like a discount airline here, but are we not quite at that yet? 
Uh, you know, I, I think from, again, from the city's perspective, our, our objective is going to be to serve our customers safely and do our part uh, to continue to uh, to manage the COVID spread appropriately in the community. And, you know, a big shout out to, to all of the staff from 2020 uh, who put 111,000 golfers off the tee uh, in a very safe manner. And so uh, uh, who knows what the future will bring, uh, but we are excited and we'll be prepared. John Paul, keep safe. Thank you, sir. That's John Paul McGonigal, Division Manager of Parks and Recreation for the City of London. So in the game of telephone, it's easy to say, well, this is what they're trying to do. They are looking at the fact that there have been losses. And one of the complaints from golfers is we can't get the tee times we want. Think about how golf tends to operate. You have a time because it's not like golf is a 20-minute trip to go and get milk at the grocery store. Golf requires a time during the day that's hours in length, sometimes a day off in order to make it happen. So you say, well, yeah, well, we can go in the morning. So it can, yeah, we'll tee off at 6. Oh, yeah, okay, see, get the earliest tee time you can. And if you can't get that one, then it's, okay, well, if that course is booked, we'll go there. I know we've got a membership here, but better. And that's kind of how it can work. So in this case, what is it going to take? It's going to take seeing that bottom line change from what it is, obviously. How do you do that? Well, that's going to be up for debate, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot from golfers about it, and, and we should expect to. What is it? If you are a golfer and you think, because Mike brought up a great idea, move the tee times closer together, and as John Paul pointed out, couple of years ago they did have that and then that had to be changed because of the pandemic but that can mean my or uh, mike had it broken down that could mean thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars in revenue if you're filling all of those extra spots so that's a positive if you're a golfer and you have a thought on this or you have a thought on what would change it what would make it better what would make say river road for instance a more attractive course is there anything that's not there that needs to be there we heard sean lewis tell us yesterday and and this is an important factor that in having an audit done they had inspectors come through and the inspectors pointed and said yeah you need to kind of fix this place up and here's what the cost would be. Well, they're not seeing that in profit, so it's difficult to say, well, we've lost this much, uh, let's lose a little bit more. Would that make a big difference if a clubhouse was different? If any of, you know, whether it's the carts or the grounds or whatever it is, if they were different, would that change things? Because the other point that Councillor Lewis pointed out was if you are to operate a private course and you want to go and you want to get a bunch of new carts you can just go and do that and you can maybe get yourself a deal because you're not just buying carts you're going to outfit the pro shop or you're going whatever it is and in the city's case they have to use tenders and it's a long process and you're not going to get any kind of deal making it essentially more expensive so that's another part to consider it is like a lot of other things, that giant boulder where you feel one side of it and it's kind of rough. You feel another side and you think, oh, that's good. That's good. Maybe it's like a sanding operation. Ever sanded a really, really large table? I haven't. I'm not handy. But I can only imagine that at some point you try and make it smooth in one area and you think, oh, no, I got down too low. Now, now I've got to sand over here. That's what this feels like, sanding a tabletop. <laughs> 
want to focus in on drunk driving punishments. And if you are someone who hears, okay, we've got lives changed, we've got, you know, loss of everything for certain individuals who lived on Woodman Ave. Andrew Graham, our 980 CFPL reporter, pointed out that there had been reactions in the past that they didn't feel safe on Woodman Ave anymore. That sense of security in what was such a tight-knit neighborhood was gone. A lot of things like that have happened. So when you look and say, only three years, although we had a lot of people saying, I get the three years. You know, she's 24 years old. I get the three years. But what about these punishments? How do we look at these and, and understand them and and how do we make a difference when it comes to drunk driving so that we don't have something like this happening anymore we've been told drinking and driving is bad for decades and it still happens so where do we look well let's look to somebody who pays very close attention to the issue of drinking and driving and to the legislation not just in canada but all over the place professor robert solomon is a professor in the faculty of law at Western University. He's also the National Director of Legal Policy for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and we're lucky enough to be able to speak with him now. Professor Solomon, how is everything going? It's going well, sir. Good. When we hear sentences that come down for drunk driving offenses that either cause bodily harm or cause death, a lot of times you'll hear this great reaction of how come it isn't longer than that? How, how come this person is only getting fill in the blank for however many years it is? When you hear things come down, sentences come down for drunk driving offenses that cause bodily harm or tragically cause death, how do you feel when you see numbers that maybe aren't in the double digits? Well, I, I think I have a, a, a broader perspective on this in that I understand the, the limits on the discretion of trial judges in terms of imposing uh, sentences. They're bound by the decisions of the Court of Appeal as well as the criminal code uh, provisions on sentencing. Having said that, I think it, my view is that traditionally we have not taken impaired driving as seriously as we should given the deaths and injuries that it imposes on society. And so I am concerned that we tend to discount the seriousness of these offenses. Now, we heard just three years ago, less than three years ago, as we had drunk driving laws updated in this country, that now we have some of the toughest drunk driving laws going. And some of those updates seem to be in what police officers could do in trying to determine whether someone had been drinking or driving. But when we talk about the toughest laws or some of the toughest laws are we are we you know should we be championing that or should we be looking and saying okay how do we still make these better well i think the the concern that i have is that politicians and sometimes the media love to talk about tough laws and when they talk about tough laws they're generally looking at the maximum sentences that can be imposed now i i think Part of the public's concern about this is that they think that uh, heavier sanctions will have a deterrent impact. What we know 
is that the major factor in determining uh, uh, in, in, in deterrence is not the maximum sentence. It's the perceived risk of apprehension. So what I want is I want laws that deter people. Sentencing is the tail of the dog. It tells you what's happened after the death of the injury. So I want to make sure that we as a society don't put all of our eggs in the punishment basket because it doesn't have the preventative impacts that we want. So we need a balanced approach. We need laws that discourage people from drinking and driving. And we do need laws which impose penalties which reflect the seriousness of uh, the deaths and injuries uh, uh, caused. So Canada has always had one of the highest rates of drinking and driving among comparable countries, uh, developed, developed uh, countries. Our charge rate per licensed driver for impaired driving is 40% of what it is in the United, United States. Most countries around the world have long had better, more effective laws at deterring. So most countries have long had mandatory alcohol screening at roadside. Uh, so Canada was at a step with most other countries until it enacted that legislation three years ago. Most countries set the criminal threshold for driving uh, uh, drunk uh, at 0.05%. We set it at 0.08%. So, yeah, I want sentencing laws that reflect the seriousness of the, the harm, but I also want uh, uh, impaired driving laws that deter. I mean, you know, when I look at the situation in London, this, uh, the, uh, the, the offender was almost three times the legal limit for driving. Well, it has been an offense in Ontario uh, actually, before uh, the province was established, so when it was Upper Canada, to serve people uh, who were past the point of intoxication. So I think it's really important that we look to see a package of measures that are going to deter people from getting drunk and getting behind the wheel of a car. And that means holding servers accountable under the Liquor License Act when they violate the legislation. It means having laws that make it easier for the police to establish uh, uh, the fact that people are uh, drinking and, and, and driving and that deter behavior. We also need legislation that encourages people who have drinking problems to get treatment. Uh, so there's a package of things that we should be doing. We are talking with Professor Robert Solomon of the Faculty of Law at Western University, also the National Director of Legal Policy for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, about, in some cases, sentencing for drunk driving cases and what maybe can be done to have more of an impact even before we get to, as Professor Solomon points out, the tail of the dog in all of this. Uh, if we look at the two seven, 2017 statistics, uh, um, we have about 60,000 people injured, uh, probably more than that each year, in alcohol and drug-related uh, crashes. About 60,000, probably more. Of that number, 450 people were charged with impaired driving causing bodily harm. So wait a minute, so let's, let's, let's digest those numbers. 60,000 injuries. Injured. And how many charges? In, in, 
455. Now, now you have to understand that 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 you know uh, it's not an offense if you only injure yourself. So if 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 you are impaired and you know drive into a tree, you'll be charged with impaired driving, but you won't be charged with impaired driving causing bodily harm. And so let's let so you're going to subtract the situations where the driver only injures himself, and they're going to be situations of multi uh, uh, multi injuries. But even still, that's a huge uh, 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 decrease from the number of injuries to the number of charges. And of those charges that were laid in 2017, about half resulted in a conviction. When we look at the the statistics, it's clear that this offense is under-enforced and that the conviction rate is relatively poor per charge. Where do we look at the gaps then, Professor Solomon? How come the conviction rate is low and how come there are apparent gaps in the number of people injured subsequent to the number of charges. Where do you point? Uh, there's a couple of factors, uh, probably the most important of which now is that if you are in a car crash and are taken to the hospital, it's extremely difficult for the police uh, to get evidence of your blood alcohol concentration. Uh, and so I know we have blood testing provisions in the criminal code, but basically they don't work. Uh, and so it's very, very difficult to get uh, uh, the, the evidence necessary uh, for bringing a, 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 a charge. So there's a great irony. The people who cause the greatest harm, namely those who are in serious crashes and end up in hospital, are the least likely to be charged and convicted because of these barriers. Now, in other jurisdictions, um, uh, uh, it is common that when you are involved in a car crash and taken to hospital, uh, the police have, or the hospital has authority to take a blood sample that can be subsequently uh, 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 seized to establish your blood alcohol concentration. In a pandemic, obviously, there's a lot going on that takes the attention of lawmakers away from certain things. But is there any discussion that you're hearing to, again, strengthen drunk driving laws in this country? Or do they look back and say, no, 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 we just did that in 2018. Uh, no, we're good. Uh, I don't see much uh political interest in the impaired driving issue. Now, now, I think we should acknowledge that we've made progress. And we've made progress primarily as a result of provincial laws, such as graduated licensing programs, uh, uh, zero blood alcohol level until you reach the age of 22, uh, and similar measures at, at the provincial level. So things are getting better, but our record in terms of impaired driving is poor. Uh, an emerging problem is that we have seen a dramatic increase in the number of people uh, who are driving after using cannabis. So when you look at the available statistics, and they're, ver they're not very good, I, mu I must say, when you look at the available uh, uh, statistics, more than 20% uh, of fatally injured drivers in this country are positive for THC. Hmm. And so that, that's, that's a, a, a matter of concern. Now, they're positive. It doesn't mean that they're impaired, 
but nevertheless, some of them clearly were impaired uh, or, or adversely affected by cannabis. So we've made progress. Uh, 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 we have uh, lots to do uh, to further reduce deaths and injuries on our roads. Professor Solomon, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Please keep safe. Yeah, you too. Thank you. That is Professor Robert Solomon, Faculty of Law at Western and National Director of Legal Policy for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 